The following Dharma talk was given at a retreat offered by Common Ground Meditation Center of Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight is the first night of our weekend retreat. And as I mentioned earlier today, I thought for the theme, we could um, use this time together to reflect on the sense of urgency that we are aware of at times at least, and also the quality of joy that's related to that sense of urgency. And for me, I what comes to mind when I bring these two concepts together, or these two experiences even better, right? The experience of urgency and the experience of joy. It's in the sense that um, there's something to do with this life. I think one of the real sources of despair and depression and, and kind of, you know, obsessive thinking and obsessive activity, mindless, obsessive activity, is that we don't think there's anything better to do with our life. So we fill it up with whatever we can. Some of you know that the Buddha described the Eightfold Path, his recognition of this path, this way of living, this way of being, as if he had discovered an ancient path in the forest. And uh, you can imagine the forests in India, which would become overgrown very quickly, probably in a matter of a couple years, a path that was intended to would be completely overgrown with vines and plants and fallen trees. And so he, he uh, found this path that other people had found before, but he found it in a way that was completely overgrown. And I think what he meant was, at the time he discovered this path, this, you know, without sounding too grand, this purpose for a living, he found it, but nobody else was using it. So his job as a teacher as a particularly good teacher, as we're told, was to clear up that path, to make it useful for other people. And so a lot of us, if we took the time to go around the room and everybody shared how they got interested in meditation practice or Buddhist meditation practice, we'd hear similar stories of discovery. I remember very distinctly the night it just dawned on me what a great path this was for me. It wasn't that I had the thought that this was the only path for other people. It was a very personal experience. I was backpacking in the Sawtooth Mountains by myself. Um, I forget what book I was reading. It might have been Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, or something like that. 
and I'd been just starting to practice. I'd been thinking a lot about meditation for about nine months or so and really exploring it quite a bit with my mind. But just recently had begun practicing and and uh, I just remember this very deep feeling and it was so comforting that I had a plan, basically. Like I knew my life was about this practice. And I, I didn't, I don't think I was being naive. I mean, I knew that I'd get distracted and I'd, you know, get interested in other things. and But that somehow my life would always come back to this path of awakening, using this life to wake up, using the mind to understand the mind. And for me, that experience is both a sense of urgency, like not wanting to waste my life, and really getting, you know, urgency to us has this sense of fear too, really getting how easy it was, because, you know, I'm, I was somebody, still am, somebody who's interested in a lot of things. I wanted to save the world, you know, I wanted to hike and backpack and rock climb and things like that. And I wanted to build things and, you know, <laughs> typical things. Back then I even wanted to have a family, I think. And uh, so the sense of urgency is just seeing how easy it was and is to get uh, sort of pulled in any of those directions, swept away. For some reason, I was really interested in, you know, getting a PhD. I'm, it didn't even matter what. It's just some ancient conditioning. So the urgency, I think, was this urgency about not forgetting what this life is really about, not being distracted. And the joy was about the confidence when I did reflect, when I wasn't forgetful, and I did understand, oh, this is what this life can be used for, there was a real sense of joy, like, yes, of course. What could be better, a better use for a, a human existence than to cultivate the heart or mind in this way? And I think what most of us uh, in these moments recognize about this path and the reason it's so trustworthy, I mean, we really get it in a, in a sense in our bones, is in a flash we understand that our predicament, our suffering, our sort of mental suffering, revolves around this feeling of separation. And we see that all those other roads we can take you know, the road to academic success and acknowledgement, the road to a wholesome family life, the road to adventure, you know, having interesting experiences, 
that all those roads were seeking this experience of, of wholeness in ways they were sort of missing the point. I think that's what that flash, that insight is about, is that the separation is here in the heart and the resolution of the separation is also here in the heart. It isn't in some experience. And the great thing about this is it means that any moment is an appropriate moment to take the next step or to, be, to, to just reflect on this, on the feeling, the experience, the, the direct moment-to-moment experience of alienation or separation or fear, or craving, or whatever particular expression that separateness has right now, to reflect on that. And as we reflect on it, to reflect on the resolution of it or the cessation of it. How the cessation of it doesn't require anything outside of the moment. This is from Ajahn Cervedo's book, The Mind and the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life. The Dharma Book Circle is uh, at Common Ground is reading this book now, and I think everybody is really appreciating it. And in this chapter on Now is the Knowing, that's the name of the chapter, he says, the spiritual life then is one in which we no longer seek union on this uh, sensory plane. So many of our uh, longings, you know, we're seeking some kind of completion or wholeness in sense experience, like falling in love with the right person or um, being loved in just the right way. And he's saying the spiritual life then is one in which we no longer seek union on the sensory plane. We no longer make demands on other beings. We no longer we're no longer expecting anything from anyone else. We're no longer even seeking God as a separate being who will come and help us, saving the day when we're in trouble. We relinquish any kind of interference or intercession from above, and we don't expect or demand that. Instead, we begin to examine the very center of being in a way that lets us realize it within the apparent separateness of our existence. So there's clearly the sense of separateness. I think we'd all agree, you know, there is a sense of separateness. But it's it's something that uh, exists because that's how we think. It's our habit of thinking in this way. It's our habitual view of things, the sense of separateness. So we have, in a sense, we have two options, which is to be, to continue to be swept along with this particular way of thinking, this thinking that comes out of this view of separateness. I feel separate 
So therefore, I'm seeking a religion or a spiritual practice, like Buddhism, for example, to to resolve the separateness. So that's even that relatively wholesome way of being swept away. That's also being swept away. Coming to the retreat, trying to use Buddhism to find a wholeness. Instead, we find, we use a practice, whatever that practice might be, to realize that this separateness is just an idea on the surface of our lives, a very compelling idea, a very distracting idea that keeps us moving in directions that don't fulfill us. As Joko Beck says, and I like to repeat, the promise that's never kept. We feel apart, we feel separate, it hurts, and so we seek to resolve it, but we seek to resolve it based on the assumption that we are in fact separate. And so if we seek the resolution to that problem based on that assumption being true, we always seek in places where we won't actually resolve the problem. So <clears throat> the way that the Buddhist teachings are different is that the method to, uh, to counteract this tendency to be swept away, to be um, acting out of this sense of separateness, is to use the mind to inquire into the experience of separateness. We use the capacity to know, to be awake, to be aware, to reflect on the actual experience of separateness over and over and over again. So Ajahn Tomato says, we need to question conventional reality, not just to look down on it or ignore it, or I could add, or we could add, to be lost in it, but really investigate it. This is what we do in meditation. We begin to investigate that which is so ordinary to the average human being that no one even bothers to notice it. Now, we might feel inclined to question something that is exotic or extreme, but to pay attention to the ordinary seems unnecessary. So I'm asking you to make a special effort to contemplate the ordinariness of life, or the ordinariness of the breath, of sensation, of sound, of thought. And this is why it's so important, you know, for the to be inspired by this path. Because nobody would do this path otherwise. Nobody would actually use the energy of their life to reflect on the ordinariness of the present moment. We just wouldn't do that. We'd use our energy to seek something to make us feel whole. And even people, of course, who meditate, you know, like all of us in this room, a lot of the time when we're meditating, we're seeking some kind of ex an experience to make us feel special or to make us feel whole, like some deep samadhi concentration experience or some special mystical experience. 
So we have to be inspired, otherwise we're just going to keep doing what we've always done, which is assuming that there really is somebody here with a problem. And if only I had, and then you just fill in the blank, then I'd be fulfilled, I'd be whole. I'd be without a problem, <clears throat> and life would be grand. But how many times have we actually inquired into the assumption, into the experience of separateness, of alienation, of feeling discontent with an open mind, not believing the experience that I'm actually discontent, there's a person here discontent, or needy, or wanting, but just to look into it as an ordinary experience. A little later in this chapter, <clears throat> Ajahn Tomato says, a human being has the ability to be alert and awake in the present moment, knowing here and now. This awakened view does not look for any particular thing because that would mean we're no longer in the knowing. We would be trying to find something to know. The awakened mind is receptive, but it's not passive and devoid of intelligence. The awakened mind is both intelligent and receptive. But this is a different kind of intelligence than we normally think of. Normally when we use the word intelligent or intelligence, it's like I'm intelligent and I'm acting skillfully to do this, to avoid that. But I think here what Ajat Samedo means by the awakened mind is both intelligent and receptive is that the capacity to be receptive frees up a responsiveness that's very skillful. But it isn't somebody being skillful. What it is, is the receptivity to be really receptive, like in this moment right now, means we have to let go of our view that promotes neediness or craving or promotes aversion or fear. We can't be fully receptive right now and anxious or fearful or craving. Now, there may be anxiety now, but we can be fully receptive to that anxiety. So what's actually happening isn't the anxiety, but the receptivity. There is a knowing anxieties like this. That's different than being anxious. Or there might be wanting or greed or craving now, like, I really want to get this, because I really want to be free, I want to be enlightened, I'm tired of suffering. Now that, that's not real intelligence. You know, clever thinking, even really sort of profound thinking can come out of that, but it's not real wisdom. Real wisdom arises when we're receptive to that greediness, when there's a knowing, oh, there's this wanting to be enlightened and it's like this. Then real wisdom comes out and usually it's expressed as equanimity or impartiality, or just letting things be, not taking things personally, understanding that things come and go on their own, in their own way, in their own time.
Ajahn Sumedho a little later says, the more you react out of ignorance, rejecting and suppressing, the more you find those very things following you about. Rejection and suppression haunt you, and you're caught in the vortex of misery that you are creating in your mind. Now acceptance doesn't mean approval or liking, but it does imply a willingness to bear with what is unpleasant, an ability and an ability to endure its nastiness and its pain. Through endurance you find that the condition can cease and can you can let it go. You can let go of things when you accept them. But until you do accept them, your life is merely a series of reactions running away if the condition is bad, or grasping at it if it's good. And then finally, at the end of this section, at the end of this chapter, he says, the more we remind ourselves of the way it is, and and the more we practice, the more we feel a sense of confidence, and the ability to abide in faith. Then we are able to respond in appropriate ways to the things that we are experiencing in the present. This is not a personal intelligence. It's not the intelligence you think about when you think you are intelligent. This intelligence is not conditioned by our culture, but it's receptive and learns from our life as we live it from birth to death. With the ability to awaken and reflect on life, we free ourselves from the illusion that the body is ourself. We no longer demand or expect fulfillment from that which cannot fulfill us. We no longer blame ourselves or others. All of that falls away, and there is a true and sensitive response, an understanding through being awake to the way things are. We understand the Buddhist teachings. Now is the knowing. So earlier today I talked about taking refuge in the Dhamma, the way things are. But to do that, we have to we have to uh, be the Buddha. We have to be the one who knows. If we're there believing the thoughts of separateness, we're not the Buddha. We're Mark, trying to be enlightened, or Mark, trying to be recognized, or Mark, trying to be loved, or trying to be profound. And because of that, there's tension and anxiety and fear and all of the ways that human beings can suffer. So earlier today, I read that poem from Mary Oliver, Sleeping in the Forest. And I think somehow she she suggests a way, like the Buddha suggests a way or Ajahn Sumedho suggests a way. about being receptive. So let me just read that poem, Sleeping in the Forest, again. I thought the earth remembered me. She took me back so tenderly, arranging her dark skirts, her pockets full of lichens and seeds. I slept as never before, a stone on the riverbed, nothing between me and the white fire of the stars but my thoughts, and they floated light as moths among the branches of the perfect trees. All night I heard the small kingdoms breathing around me, the insects and the birds, 
who do their work in the darkness. All night I rose and fall as if in water, grappling with a luminous doom. By morning I had vanished at least a dozen times into something better. So that receptivity, I really feel that with that line, I slept as never before, a stone on the riverbed. It's just resting in the moment, like a stone might rest. You know, we sink and we let things be. We let the mind be. We let the body be. We let the conditions of the moment be. And, you know, that's such a, a mysterious place to be, that that experience of receptivity is so profound. I mean, it's so ordinary to be in the moment. But on the other hand, it's very challenging to be completely receptive. And it doesn't matter what moment we're completely, we practice being fully receptive, like this moment or when you, when you had dinner or as you're falling asleep tonight. And so I like how in the poem she talks about I rose and fall as if in water grappling with a luminous doom. To me it really resonates as how how I experience it. That, That quality of receptivity is something very uh, luminous. Uh, There's so much energy in it, which is surprising, because it feels like, you know, from our self-centered way of thinking, seeing, it feels like it would be the ultimate passivity to be receptive. But there's something luminous and awake and alive about being receptive. Because being receptive has nothing to do with being still, like the body being still, or the mind even being still. Being receptive means not taking sides with experience, with the conditions, for or against the conditions of the moment. It means letting the conditions of the mind, the conditions around us, the conditions of our body, just be what they are. And so in a way, we're compelled to trust, right? To some degree, everybody here in this room really trusts this practice of receptivity, or or maybe you call it opening, or letting things be. On some level, intuitive or... Somehow we all know and trust this experience. As we do that, we begin to open to something that scares us. It scares the ego because it's different than the ego. And so we react. That's that grappling she talks about in the water as if drowning. So we're kind of uh, compelled, drawn, to it, like a rock that sinks, you know, when it gives in, just lands, and yet we're not quite ready. (laughs) I had a teacher once, I moved to New York City, I thought I'd never would ever want to move to New York City until I met this teacher, um, Swami Ashokananda, he said, grew up in New York City, and 
he was a um, a monk, or a Hindu monk, but you know he's just an American. Um, and he ran the Integral Yoga Institute in New York City. And he once wrote a he he's just this great practitioner and teacher and friend and he he liked to like we do sometimes at our community celebrations where people convert old well-known songs to sort of dharma songs well he used to do that too he loved loved music and i forget what tune it was but he he had converted one you know rewrote the lyrics to one famous rock tune and he talked about sort of lamenting you know uh, may i be enlightened but not quite yet <laughs> which is sort of how a lot of us are you know we're we like the idea of receptivity really letting go letting things be but but we also want to enjoy life we want to enjoy the enlightenment we want to enjoy the freedom so we're kind of caught in this place where we we're really sick and tired of being bound up and we want to be free of that weight but not quite yet because <laughs> there's still more things we want to explore more experiences that we're interested in having and that's just how it is for us so then what we have to show for our practice is you know as we talk to our dharma friends after retreats or after times of practice and we say things like i vanished at least a dozen times into something better right? we had moments of letting go of our addiction to a sense of separateness meaning we we really rode that wave of confidence that sort of allowed us to be more and more receptive more and more open we rode it we let go and we touched something we touched the absence of self-centered thinking of being um, caught in self-centered thinking it doesn't even mean there wasn't thinking but the way we were relating to the thinking was relatively free free of identification So even though we may there may be a particular moment like I described where I I sort of uh, felt a, a certainty about there is a path, but then we want we want to make that real over and over again. And there are many ways to make that real. You know, often what's emphasized, especially in Theravada Buddhism, the tradition that you know the insight meditation or vipassana. Um, I don't know if you want to call that a lineage or the way we teach here in the West, Vipassana or insight meditation comes out of the Theravada tradition. They emphasize, like the Buddha did, using the experience of dukkha, of mental stress, mental suffering, as a way to get our bearings in life. So when we're confused about, like, what's the, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing in life? We we sort of get our bearings by right here in this moment understanding directly the experience of discontentment so to, to, to the degree I feel compelled to do something 
it means that there's not perfect contentment right here and now. So we, we should look at that. So instead of immediately moving into action, let's just get our bearings by feeling what's driving the action, really connecting with the experience of dis-ease or discontentment or suffering. In one of his talks, the Buddha said, inflamed by lust, incensed by hate, confused by delusion, our mind obsessed, we choose for our own affliction, for others' affliction, and for the affliction of both, in experience, pain, and grief. Inflamed by lust, incensed by hate, confused by delusion, our mind obsessed, we choose for our own affliction, for the affliction, for others' affliction, and for the affliction of both, and experience pain and grief. So that's one way to get our bearings. So we look, we see that, and it's like, you see, if, if that's seen correctly, it inspires a, a letting go, a non-attachment or a dispassion or disenchantment with the conditions of the moment. But it's not an aversion. So this is the downside of that particular, using this particular kind of teaching, is it's very easy, if we're not careful, to think that the conditions of the moment, the conditions of this life are bad. That the pain in the body is bad because it inspires hate, or the pleasantness in my life is bad because it inspires lust or craving. But that's not what the Buddha is suggesting. Dispassion and disenchantment, it just means we understand the limitations of pleasant and unpleasant sense experience. That trying to feed off of sense experience is really limited and definitely leads to stress, to tension, to pain and suffering. So what's a human being to do? I mean, if we're not here to feed off a sense experience, to sort of derive our fulfillment from sense experience, which includes our thinking, then, then where do we find our fulfillment? And this is that turning. Right? This is the understanding of the path. The fulfillment isn't in having some special experience. The fulfillment is in realizing we don't need an experience. No experience is needed. That's the recognition of the path. When you look at the Four Noble Truths as a way of practicing, which this is, of course, one of the basic ways the Buddha suggests we reflect all life long. It's not like something to learn and memorize. It's something to keep reflecting on. Dukkha, suffering, the cause, the end, and the path. And isn't it interesting that in a moment of experiencing the end of dukkha, meaning perfect, full receptivity, that is the only moment when we understand the path. We're not clear about how to live unless we're experiencing a moment of cessation, the end of suffering, a moment of real peace. Then we understand, oh, it's like, how, what to do with this human existence all of a sudden gets illuminated. Oh, this is what life is about. This is what I should do with this life. 
but that's okay. I mean, we might want things to be illuminated right now. And no matter who would be talking, even if the Buddha himself were here or herself were here talking, it wouldn't necessarily help us very much. It'd probably be better than me, but <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily help us because the illumination is seen directly. It's like uh, our heart and mind has to be free of confusion. And then we get, oh, it's already okay. I don't need to seek anything outside of this moment. Sure, things are going to happen. This body and mind is still alive, doing its thing. But now, if my life isn't based on getting what I need, what else could it be based on? What's left? Generosity and compassion. Right? So instead of living, you know, with the sense of like pulling toward ourselves that what's needed, security, health, love, you know, and, and sort of dodging the dangers, then life becomes an upwelling. It's like life is just energy. And so our life is just the expression, the natural and free expression, which is really what generosity is. Generosity is the natural way. And the opposite of generosity, or kindness, or compassion, is delusion, is friction, unnecessary friction, that comes from misperceiving and getting caught in separation. And I, I really love, in uh, an essay Mary Oliver wrote, she talks about just how compelling this delusion is. So I'm going to read this short essay. It's just two and a half pages. It's called A Few Words, and it's in her book, Blue Pastures. Nothing in the forest is charming. Gardens are charming, and man-made grottos. And there is a tranquility about scenes of husbandry and agriculture that is charming. Orderly rows of vegetation, or lazy herds, or the stalks of a of harvest lashed and leaning together, and nothing in the forest is cute. The dog fox is not cute, nor the little foxes. I watch them as they run up and down the dune. One is carrying the soiled wing of a gull. The others grab onto it and pull. They fly in and out of the blonde grasses, their small teeth snapping. They are not adorable or charming or cute. The owl is not cute. The milk snake is not cute, nor the spider in its web, nor the striped bass. Neither is the skunk cute. And its name is not Flower, nor is there a rabbit in the forest whose name is Thumper, who is cute. Toys are cute, but animals are not toys. Neither are trees, rivers, oceans, swamps, the Alps, the mockingbirds singing all night in the thorn, the snapping turtle, or the purple-fleshed mushroom. Such words, cute, charming, adorable, miss the mark. For what is perceived of in this way is stripped of dignity and authority. What is cute is entertainment and replaceable. The words lead us and we follow. What is cute is diminutive 
and it is powerless, it is capturable, it is trainable, it is ours. It is all a mistake. At our feet are the ferns, savage and resolute they rose, when the race of man was nowhere, and altogether unlikely ever to be at all, in the terrifying shallows of the first unnamed and unnameable oceans. We find them pretty, delicate, and charming, and we carry them home to our gardens. Thus we manage to put ourselves in the masterly way. If nature is full of a hundred thousand things adorable and charming, diminutive and powerless, then who is in possession, I'm sorry, who is in the position of power? We are. We are the parents and the governors. The notion facilitates a world of a, a view of the world as a playground and laboratory, which is a meager view, surely. It is, and it is disingenuous, for it seems so harmless, so responsible, but it is neither. A little later she says, Nature, the total of all of us, is the wheel that drives our world. Those who ride it willingly might yet catch a glimpse of a dazzling, even a spiritual restfulness. While those who are unwilling simply, who are, who are unwilling simply to hang on, who insist that the world must be piloted by man for his own benefit, will be dragged around and around all the same, gathering dust but no joy. This sounds really Buddhist to me. Right? It's all about karma. Nature, the total of all of us, is the wheel that drives our world. Those who ride it willingly might yet catch a glimpse of the dazzling, even a spiritual rest, restfulness. So this is all about receptivity. Just letting nature be nature. But mostly we try to take control of it. And then right at the end of this essay, she goes, Life is Niagara or nothing. I would not be the overlord of a single blade of grass, that I might be its sister. I put my face close to the lily where it stands just above the grass and give it a good greeting from the stem of my heart. We live, I am sure of this, in the same country, in the same household, and our burning comes from the same lamp. We are all wild, valorous, amazing. We are, none of us, cute. A little earlier she talks about how we all die, and she has this wonderful little uh, line I just, where she just talks about that. Uh, Don't we all, a few summers, stand here and face the sea, and with whatever physical and intellectual deafness we can muster, improve our state, and then silently fall back into the grass, death's green cloud. And then after that she says, what's cute about what comes and goes? There's nothing cute about death. There's nothing cute about things that come and go. And I think about this essay, a couple things. I mean, this is, this is a good description for what our mind does most of the time. It turns things into concepts like cute or adorable or yucky. But things aren't really yucky or adorable. They're just what they are. This is what Dhamma or Dharma means. Things as they are. 
There was a movie, some of you I'm sure saw, called The Grizzly Man. Have a few of you seen that movie? Herzog, is that the German director who did it? It's a, it's a pretty, I guess in some ways disturbing, certainly interesting movie, but disturbing in some ways. And it was about a, a younger man, I think in his, started in his mid-twenties and then for about ten years would go up to Alaska and hang out with the grizzly bears and got really close to them uh, in ways that most uh, experts would consider really stupid. And he eventually got eaten by, the, by a grizzly bear, he and the person that was with him at the time. But you could tell in his, uh, the movie is mostly the footage of film he shot of himself with the grizzlies. And you could tell he had a very idealistic or romantic view of the grizzly bears. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't love them or didn't care about them, but he was very much in his head about them. And there's one scene in particular where the director, uh, this German director, Hutzog, who narrates the film or parts of the film, um, sort of shows the grizzly bear in just the right light, and, and certainly the way that I relate to um, having spent time in Alaska and just sort of captures the sort of the grizzly as nature, a force of nature. Not good, not bad, but nothing, nothing to have a personal relationship with. And we can get this too, like sometimes when you're watching a sunset, like there's a beautiful sunset this evening, and we can be watching the sunset in a very personal way, having a very personal relationship with the sunset. I really like beautiful sunsets. And it's like we're feeding off of it. And I don't mean to be critical. I'm just sort of describing what we tend to do. So there's a relationship, like we're in a way feeding off of the beauty, trying to get something from the beautiful sunset, as if it's adding something to our life. And, and we can just, at that moment, have the thought of practicing, which means to simply receive the sunset as an experience in the moment. It's just what it is. It's the warm colors and the soft breeze, and maybe there's a kind of stillness. But it's not personal, and it's not impersonal. It's dhamma or dharma. It's just what it is. And it was really great in that movie where he just, as he was making this point in the narration, and he just turned the camera on a grizzly bear. Maybe some of you remember this scene. And I think it was a really close shot. So some of you know when you look into the eyes of wild animals, it's, it can be disconcerting. Even not just wild animals, even domesticated animals, but I think especially wild animals. Because as much as our sort of thinking mind want, might want to personalize the connection. What we see is emptiness. We see the absence of a center there when we look into the eyes of an animal. There's no center there. Now, in a garden, we might there may be a natural center to the garden and an edge to the garden. But when we go into the woods, there's no center there either. Or when we're out in nature and the weather, there's no center to the weather. And this is a, just a way of reflecting on Dhamma, the way it is, from cuteness or yuckiness to Dhamma, 
from rejection and attachment to Dhamma. And this is that mystery that I talked about earlier today that's so compelling. On the one hand, in, in the deepest way, in a magnetic way, we're drawn to it. And uh, But we scratch and resist the whole way. You know, this is a good description of spiritual life. You know, we're compelled to study the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, compelled to go on retreats, but we'd rather not. <laughs> but yet, we really want to, because not doing it means we burn. You know, we keep spinning in ways that on some level we realize are unproductive and don't go anywhere. Looking for love in all the wrong faces. You know, seeking <coughs> seeking fulfillment from things that can't fulfill us. There's a, a metaphor that's used often that I like um, that Joko Beck uses where she talks about ice cubes. Maybe some of you remember it. I'm not sure what book it's in. If it's in her um, Everyday Zen or I forget now what the other book is called. Everyday Zen and Ordinary? No. Nothing special, thanks. So, yeah, so nothing special in Everyday Zen, both excellent books. But in one of those books, she has a chapter on ice cubes. And, uh, you know, the idea is that we're constantly freezing our experience into concepts. So we're all in this flow. That's just how it is. We know that intellectually that life flows on. But we translate, we take experience and we translate it into concepts, which is an act of freezing. Concepts have a sense of solidity and permanence that experience doesn't have. So when we're receptive, opening to Dhamma the way it is, then it's the opposite of the sense of permanency, solidity. So when things feel, I got it, you know, defined and we're clear, and we know what's going on, then we're in the world of concepts. We're an ice cube. And ice, you know, is hard and often sharp. <laughs> she loves this metaphor. She just plays around with it in all different ways. She says, yeah, but one of the nice things about coming together in a spiritual community is you ice cubes bump up against each other and their corners get a little bit more rounded, not as sharp. And, and the practice heats us up. And what is the practice? Where well, the practice is being awake or aware or receptive or open. And it's a warming practice. Whatever we do to develop sensitivity in life, in the moment, is it sort of warms us up as ice cubes. And once we've done that, we get a little mushy. And once we experience mushiness, we never forget it. This is understanding what the path is about. The path is to melt. It's not as an ice cube to do something as an ice cube. It's to learn to stop being an ice cube. That's what 
our existence is about. That's the noble path for a human being, is to stop being an ice cube. Well, in a sense, water is still like an ice cube. I mean, they're both made up of whatever, H2O, but it's really different. And that's a good description, you know, a fully awake, happy, loving, wise human being is still a human being. But they're able to flow, you know, to respond to situations in a way that an ice cube can. As an ice cube, when I enter a situation, a circumstance, I'm pretty much, you know, the dimensions of my being is pretty much set. What you see is what you get. But if I'm water, well, it's pretty easy for me to respond to the circumstance very, very nimbly. This is from a well-known Tibetan teacher, um, one of uh, I think one of the Dalai Lama's main teachers, <coughs> Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He died in 91. <clears throat> Water is soft and fluid, ice hard and sharp. So we cannot say that they are identical, but neither can we say that they're different, because ice is only solidified water. Water is only melted ice, the world around us. To be attached to the reality of phenomena is to be tormented by attraction and repulsion, by pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and obscurity, praise and blame. Creates a solidity in the mind. What we have to do, therefore, is to melt the ice of concepts into the living water of freedom within. And then later he's, he's giving some instructions. He says, maintain that state of simplicity. If you encounter happiness, success, prosperity, or other favorable conditions, consider them as dreams and illusions and do not get attached to them. If you are stricken by illness, calamity, deprivation, or other physical and mental trials, do not let yourself get discouraged, but rekindle your compassion and generate the wish that through your suffering, all beings' sufferings may be exhausted. Whatever circumstances arise, do not plunge into either elation or misery, but stay free and comfortable in unshakable serenity. So this is our practice. You know, first and foremost, our practice is just to remember this possibility to keep reorienting ourselves because we're going to fall into striving like we're here on retreat to get something. And so then we remember it's not about an ice cube getting what an ice cube wants. It's about an ice cube. In this case, an ice cube is a, a needy human being melting. So an ice cube, a needy human being, no longer being a needy human being, no longer being frozen. So every moment is a good moment for this practice.
learning not to be surprised by whatever fear or doubt arises or joy. And to be willing to begin again no matter how many times we get lost. That the freedom is here and now in the experience of receptivity or as Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, now is the knowing. So taking refuge in the Buddha, the one who knows. Let's just sit together for a few minutes before our walking practice, letting go of the words.